Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based champion. Championship team. This is Brewers on Tap. Untapped. It is the official podcast of the Milwaukee Brewers, and I'm Lane Grindle. Welcome to episode number 40. Get involved each and every week with comments or questions. You can get them to us at the Brewers account by using the hashtag BrewersOnTap. On this edition of the podcast, we're going to catch up with brand new brewer, Colin Walsh, who just experienced his first ever opening day. And oh, by the way, it was also his major league debut. Pretty cool story. We're going to break down everything that goes into an opening day at Miller Park with COO Rick Schlesinger and the regular season's upon us. So we're going to take a look at the first couple of games of the series with the San Francisco Giants. But first, this date in Brewer history. And now, this week in Brewers history. April 7th, 1978, Paul Molitor makes his MLB debut. He was the number two rookie of the year that year in the voting. He hit 273, six home runs, 45 driven in, 30 stolen bases, 73 runs scored. And it was the Brewers' first winning season in franchise history that year. They went 93-69. and 69. That was third place in the AL East. The seven-time All-Star World Series MVP in 1993 with Toronto, Hall of Famer in 2004, first-round draft pick, number three. Harold Baines was number one that year. Of Milwaukee back in 1977 was out of the University of Minnesota. Paul Molitor, one of the greats to ever put on a uniform for Milwaukee, made his debut on April 7th of 78. Well, the regular season has started, and unfortunately for the crew, a couple of losses on Monday and Tuesday opening day on April 4th was a spectacular sight to be seen leading up to the game and the crew got out to a good start but the Giants bats just too much as they were able to knock Willie Peralta out of the game early and get to the Brewers bullpen late as well on their way to a 12-3 victory. A couple of bright spots though, a big home run out of Scooter Jeanette in the contest along with Jonathan VR, who's playing very well early for the crew. So a 12-3 loss on opening day, and Willie Peralta took the loss for the crew. In game number two on Tuesday, a really good pitcher's duel between Johnny Cueto, who pitched 
for the world champion Kansas City Royals last year and was part of that shutout performance against the New York Mets at Kauffman Stadium in Game 2 of the World Series last year. Boy, he picked up where he left off last year. He was very good against the crew, but so was Jimmy Nelson, who went seven and a third innings. He pitched very, very well into the eighth inning and only gave up two earned runs in the contest, did Jimmy Nelson. But unfortunately for the crew, they fall by a final score of 2-1. to one. Cueto was a little shaky early, but once he settled in, like great pitchers do, he was very good. The crew only had two hits after the third inning in that contest. So the crew sitting at 0-2 going into the series finale with the Giants. Let's catch up with the crew. New Brewer Colin Walsh, our guest here on the podcast. And Colin, uh, yesterday had to be a really special day for you. Obviously the result on the field wasn't what you wanted, but your MLB debut, opening day roster, what was it like to take that all in? It was incredible uh, you know it's been 24 years of of work started when I was two I guess so just the culmination of a long trip here and I haven't had the most uh, standard career it's been a lot of ups and a lot of downs uh, so just for it to all come together and have my family my mom my dad and my brother were all here a couple uncles to be there to experience it you know it's, it's harder as a player because you're in the mindset like this is the start of a season and I want to do well for the whole year so you don't want to get too caught up in it but I think it was awesome for my parents because they've been there the whole time to kind of see the culmination of everything in my whole career together. Take me back to the moment you found out you were going to make the team because you've had a, a few days to get yourself ready for what what transpired yesterday. Yeah I had it was in spring training I was in a different situation as a rule five guy so I'd got called in and I knew it was one of two things <laughs> and it wasn't hey you're going to triple or hey you're on the team because if I didn't make the team I was going to be on waivers could end up with any other team or go back to the A's and so I was in a spot where I didn't know at all what was going to happen but they called me in and it was it was pretty quick he, he didn't hold out too long he had a serious look on for a little bit and then he told me hey you made a team and obviously that was the moment that really really excited I think yesterday was cooler because you get to experience it and opening day here is is awesome the fans really come out and, and support the team so uh, overall it was that was a great day yesterday was a great day <laughs> it's been a series of great days once all the pageantry was kind of behind you yesterday and because obviously you got in the game in the later innings you know was it just another game to you or was it still pretty cool walking up there for the first time for your first at bat it was pretty cool you know I don't get uh, really nervous at the plate um, ever that's kind of you know that's what I'm it's my home I guess uh, but going out and playing left when I had played zero innings of left field in the past like three years was a little nervous uh, and the first ball was hit to me too so obviously it'll find you but uh, overall it was it was awesome you know and then everybody was in attendance my mom got some cool pictures and uh, it was just exciting you know I had a decent at bat cut off of land a little bit but still hit it well so um, overall it was just an unbelievable experience Colin Walsh is with us here on the podcast let's go back through being a rule five guy uh, what that was like um, to, to understand that you were in a different situation than others were you surprised when you were unprotected Because you had a big year last year uh, in double a you know I talked to the A's and um, they 
kind of told me we don't, they only protected two guys. They didn't have much room in their 40 man, and I was kind of the last guy left off. And it wasn't like I was surprised. I knew I was on the cusp. And when I found out I was unprotected, then obviously I was hoping for the Rule 5. That was an exciting day in and of itself because I knew I had an opportunity to make a team and make an impact. Uh, whereas the A's have a lot of guys in AAA and a lot of guys in my situation, so it would have been hard, a lot harder to break with that team, especially not on the 40-man. Whereas the Rule 5, I get to come here, I'm on the 40-man, and if they don't want me, then they got to send me back. So it was it was different uh, in a sense that I knew I couldn't go to AAA here, but I've kind of fought for a job my entire career, and so it wasn't anything new for me. I was never a prospect, and I never was, you know, handed 500 at bats every year. So, 2014, I was playing twice a week. Um, so it was, it's, it's definitely not a new situation for me, and it's, it's something I'm used to at this point. There were times in your career where you you didn't know if this was going to happen for you. What what got you through those moments? I was actually released after 2013, uh, 2014 spring training. So there was a time when I didn't have a baseball career for about two weeks. And, you know, it, it's, it's, it's weird thinking, is this it? Is it over? Is that uh, everything? Uh, last year, going into the year, I was honest. I was If I didn't have a good year and I didn't see myself making the majors anytime soon, then I was going to retire. You know, I have a lot of friends in the working world and, um, I went to Stanford for a reason, so I didn't want to keep toiling in the minors for for a little pay and, and no chance at the big leagues. You know, everyone plays to play in the majors, so I gave myself a year and said, if I don't have a good year, I'm not going to leave anything on the field. I don't want to look back and be like, well, if I had played one more, I would have had a chance. So I did everything I could, had the best year of my career, and put myself in a good position and Obviously, now I'm in the majors. So it, there's been a lot of times when I think, you know, I don't, I don't think everybody can say for 100% of the time they've always been like, yeah, I play baseball and I love it and I'm going to play as long as I can. For some guys, that's, that's the answer. But I was honest with myself, and at some point you do have to move on with your life if you're not in a position to make the majors. So I, there was times I looked in the mirror and thought, you know, is, is this it? Are we, are we going to keep doing this? or? Or, or, you know, what's the situation? So there's some definitely uh, introspective moments that I've had throughout the years, multiple times. You played at Stanford under a legendary coach in Mark Marquess, and, of course, that's a factory. They've put out a lot of MLB guys. You're really well-known for your plate discipline. Where, where did that start for you? Where did you start to understand the strike zone, and, and how does it change depending upon the counts that you're in? I have a really specific approach, and... Without going into too much detail, you give everything away. Uh, yeah, no, it's, it's. I mean, I could sit here for an hour and explain yeah. to you what I think, but the way I look at hitting is, I'm up there to do damage, and if it's not a pitch that I can do damage with, I'm not going to swing at it until I get two strikes. Whether or not it's a strike, whether or not it's a fastball, or what I'm looking for, if you put it on the black, good for you. Do that three times, and you'll probably strike me out. But most pitchers can't do that, so. I don't want to look for a pitch that I can just put in play before two strikes. And I've always had a pretty good eye um, in terms of knowing the strike zone. So that's helped. I've walked a lot in my career. But last year was a culmination of putting together my approach with my strike zone discipline. And, and so, you know, I had a lot of counts when I was down 0-2 quick because they made two good pitches. But then 
I ended up getting walked because they tried to nibble too much here, a little too much there, and then you know I'm first base. So it's kind of just when I put those two together last year is when it really came through. But I think the plate discipline and having a good eyes, it's kind of like a six tool. Um, a lot of people don't talk about it, but you can't really take someone that doesn't walk and teach them how to walk. Just like you can't teach me how to hit 70 or 60 home runs or, or you know, steal 50 bases or, or whatever. So I think that there's a lot of guys, if you know the strike zone, it's something that you've kind of always done. Um, and that's always been one of my biggest skills. It's the reason I'm here. You know, I'm not a overly tooled player, so I have to be really good at the things that I'm good at, and those are my strengths. Colin, we appreciate it. Thanks so much, and congratulations once again. Thank you. Appreciate it. And our thanks to Colin Walsh. What a cool thing for him to get to experience. He's a Rule 5 draft pick, which means he has to stay on the Brewers roster all season long or be offered back to the Oakland Athletics. Okay, let's get nerdy and get in the classroom with Sabermetrics 101. Today we're going to look at home run slash fly ball, or HR slash FB. It means home run to fly ball ratio. And this, like so many other forms of Sabermetrics, is basically exactly as it sounds. It measures how many home runs are hit against a pitcher for every fly ball that they allow. And, and what it really does is it illustrates how lucky or maybe unlucky a pitcher's been. The only surefire way for a pitcher to actually lower their home run to fly ball ratio is to induce more ground balls. So essentially, you'd have to change maybe the way you pitch. You'd have to start pitching down in the zone more, getting more sink on the ball. And, and even though the pitcher does have some control on whether or not a fly ball leaves the yard, much of it is actually just due to luck. For example, if a pitcher allows a large number of fly balls but a very small number of home runs, it may be due to playing in a larger park or it may just be due to some luck that's trending in their direction over the course of two or three weeks and you need a bigger sample size. And it might be that that number is actually going to catch up to them down the road. So essentially this stat can help you learn more about how the pitcher's ERA or numbers have looked as good as they are or unfortunately maybe as poor as they are. Home run to fly ball ratio is calculated exactly like it looks. Home runs allowed divided by fly balls allowed by the pitcher. Checking in on the farm. Time to check in on the farm and a lot to get to here because all the assignments came out this week and we'll give you some of the big prospects at each level, whether it's Colorado Springs, Biloxi, Brevard County, or Appleton with the Wisconsin Timber Rattlers. At Colorado Springs, you're going to see the number one prospect in the Brewers organization, Orlando Arcia. But also, you're going to see right-handed pitcher Jorge Lopez, who, depending on who you read, is the second or third best prospect in the system, along with Brett Phillips. Both could see action in the big leagues before the season's over. In Biloxi, who I just mentioned, Brett Phillips, one of the top prospects in the organization. He's going to be there patrolling center field and different outfield spots. Catcher Jacob Nottingham's a top 10 prospect, and he can just absolutely hit the baseball. And then you have a couple of really nice pitching prospects that came over in the Carlos Gomez-Mike Fires trade. Left-handed pitcher Josh Hader and right-handed pitcher Adrian Hauser among the top prospects. Brevard County is going to have a couple of really good young arms. Left-handed pitcher Cody Medeiros and right-handed pitcher Cody Ponce, among others. And then Wisconsin's going to be full of some great prospects. Also, outfielder Monte Harrison, third baseman Jake Gatewood, and shortstop Isan Diaz figure to be some of the big names that you're going to want to pay attention to over the course of Class A season this year. Let's break it down. 
Rick Schlesinger is our guest here on the podcast, the COO of the Brewers. And Rick, opening day, for me, th- that was my first experience with opening day with the Brewers. And clearly, it's on another level than most sporting events that y- anybody gets a chance to take in. How much planning goes into putting together a day with all the per- pomp and cir- circumstance of an opening day? You know, Lane, it's, it's almost like a, a national holiday here in, in Wisconsin. Is, is, uh, you know, this was my 14th opening day with the Brewers, and everyone has its own challenges and opportunities and unknowns and, and things you work on. But there's a lot of people at the Brewers that uh, work very hard to make sure it goes as seamless as possible. And that doesn't mean there aren't things that we can't do better. And after opening day and after, frankly, the opening homestand, we sit down with our management and go over what we can do better and what feedback we got from folks. But, you know, literally, if, you know, people are coming into a small city, you know, you've got 44,000 people here and, you know, the grass has to be perfect. uh, The bathrooms have to be clean. The food has to be prepared. You've got, you know, so many different food options and all has to be ready to go. And you've got to have all the soda and all the beer ready to go. You have to have everything refrigerated. You have to have all the staffing in place. There are, you know, thousands of people that are working here in concessions, parking, ticket-taking, ushers, security. Uh, And they all have to be at their posts. They all have to be working shifts. They all have to be respectful, responsible, high-quality people. And, and again, it's, it's a huge undertaking. But... We have great partners. We have a great group of people that work and love the brewers, and uh, I think they do an excellent job. And I was very pleased with opening day from that perspective. Obviously, I wanted a better result in the field, but can't control that sitting here in the business offices. Rick, I think one of the things that that people probably don't understand about it, too, is you know, it's not like you get a dry run before opening day. I mean, you, you have a lot of people that have been doing this a long time, and so they understand how to pull off a game day. But at the same time, it, you're kind of just throwing yourselves out there and hoping that everything goes according to plan. Right. I mean, sometimes we have exhibitions at home in yeah. advance of the season, but you're talking, you know, a much smaller crowd and a much different atmosphere. It, it's it's sort of interesting that in our business, are usually our most heavily attended game is the first game. So you right off the bat are thrown into the fire literally, and you are dealing with, you know, every possible service challenge that you can have. And the great thing is this ballpark is so accommodating. It's got wide concourses. It's got, you know, ample concession areas, ample bathrooms. It's got a great footprint to allow us to do what we need to do. But it it is a big deal. And, you know, there's certainly unknowns and things that can go wrong, and you try to learn from your mistakes. And every year we do learn things, and every year we try to do some things better. And again, we want the experience to be great from the moment that people enter our parking lots to the moment they leave the parking lots. And frankly, after when they're listening on the radio and hopefully listening to the postgame show talk about a great Brewers victory, which uh, I expect to see some of those. Uh, maybe not opening day, of course, but uh, we've got 80 more home games at least. Well, you, you mentioned partners, and certainly vendors play into it as well. What is that process like in terms of in the off season when you're looking at, okay, these are the things we want to make sure that we're offering this coming season. I'm sure there's a lot of things that just roll over. But you're always looking for some new things that are going to grab some attention. It seems like that's become more and more a part of Major League Baseball. Everybody's trying to come up with some sort of concession item that only they have that everybody's talking about. Yeah, I mean, our, our biggest uh, opportunities, frankly, are in the, the food and beverage area, and, and that you would expect. I mean, when fans come to the ballpark, they want to have the staples, the hot dogs, the brats, the yeah. beer, the soda, but they also want to try new things. And we're always trying to make sure we know what our fans want. And I'm not saying we're successful 100% of the time because culinary tastes of our fans change very quickly. Uh, and there's a very strong food culture in this community, and people expect 
high quality food and high quality drinks and we do our best to match it and the reality is is there are some limitations you know we are not going to be able to uh, serve things that take a long time to prepare because we've got 44,000 people and we don't want lines to be exceedingly long uh, we've got to deal with the price sensitivity. We've got to deal with the fact that uh, we've got to prepare a lot of things in advance or get ready to prepare for an advance, and then hopefully the customers in, end up buying what we've prepared. Uh, so we spend a lot of time in the off-season with our concessionaire to figure out the menu items, to figure out how we can better operate, make things more efficient, uh, and make sure that we offer things that fans ultimately want to buy, and that's high quality. And, and frankly, there's work to be done. We, we think that we provide a good ballpark experience in the food and beverage side, and we're going to look to make it better, and we've got a lot of plans in place to do that in the next coming years. The thing in sports that you hear everybody talking about is fan experience now. It's one of the things we're talking about. How has social media changed the fan experience? Well, I think what it's done is, is it made everything instant. You know, everybody now can be an instant food critic, an instant critic of the game, an instant critic of the experience. And, and with that comes responsibility. Uh, it comes responsibly on the team's part to respond. We have to make sure that we know what our fans are saying in social media. That is, frankly, the, the primary source of communication for an incredibly large and diverse and growing fan base. You know, maybe for somebody like me who's 54 or my parents' age, we're not necessarily going to be saying everything on Twitter or following everything on Instagram or Facebook. But for anybody who's 35 and under, that's their primary source of communication. And we monitor it. We obviously are active participants in all the social media. We get the word out about our promotions and tickets and all of the things that we try to do in the community through social media. And it's, it's going to become an ever-growing uh, part of our business. And, in fact, it's a challenge to keep up because what's popular now is probably not going to be popular in three years. The dynamics of social media are changing so fast. Um, we, we expand our marketing through social media, and we're probably going to spend even more marketing dollars and more marketing efforts in social media. And, and frankly, for a growing fan base, that is the primary source of communication between us and our fans, and we understand that. Rick, always appreciate it. Thanks so much for giving us some insight. Thanks, Lane. Glad to have you on board. Here's what's on tap with the Brewers. What's on tap? Well, opening weekend is upon us. That means that the crew will be welcoming the Houston Astros to town Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, so you can head out to Miller Park for the first weekend series of 16. Astros, of course, and American League playoff team from a year ago. They were the, in the wild card game against the Yankees. Then they were eliminated by the Kansas City Royals in five games in the ALDS. Friday, April 8th, it's student night. That game's at 710. High school and college students can purchase $10 tickets and enjoy a special $3 happy hour menu. Plus, Saturday, April 9th, that game's at 610. And Sunday, April 10th, a 110 getaway day game. Vintage Brewerhead bobblehead. All fans in attendance will receive an old-fashioned bobblehead featuring the crew's 1980s ball and glove uniforms. And then, of course, and this is going to be going all year. This is cool. Kids eat free Sunday. Every Sunday, all kids 14 and under will receive a lunch voucher. Good for a free hot dog, bottled water, apple slices, and an ice cream treat. Hey, for tickets, you can call 414-902-4000 or visit brewers.com. Well, that's going to do it for this week's edition episode number 40 of Brewers on Tap. I want to say thanks to our guest Colin Walsh and COO Rick Schlesinger. I'm Lane Riddle. Thanks for listening to Brewers on Tap.
Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. 